everybody welcome to the 172nd edition of the holy backboard podcast i am dustin here in rip city and i got my man sage chilling here in uh beaverton oregon and uh daytime podcast man it's been a minute since we've done one of those bro had to kind of uh flip the script and uh change it up a bit you know we're usually nighttime boys but it's two o'clock we're both at home no why not (laughs) happens when we're both job searching right now you know what i'm saying we can we can schedule them a lot earlier than we normally would. Schedules are a lot more open and flexible. Dog, it's like, bro, man, I went to a job fair yesterday and like, apparently I logged in and I have a, I had a ticket for the job fair, but apparently I didn't sign up with their website and I just was like, oh, I can check to see who my employment manager is and then I just snuck into the job fair. And then I uh, realized it was like a medical job fair. And I was like, I'm way underqualified <laughs> for all this shit. Purse. <laughs> so I spent like 25 minutes at a, the job fair. And I was like, I told my mom, well, I'm done. <laughs> See, ya. I'm going back to the house. I have had. It's rough out there. Dog, right? And uh, But there, there are some jobs that I'm actually passionate about, not that I've applied for. But, uh. The medical field doesn't want me. I, I think that's okay. It, yeah, I think it, I think it's cool that the medical field is sageless. I'm just glad the holy backboard is full of sage, and I was actually really stoked that we are going to be recording. I know it is the dog days of summer. Uh, the schedule is actually going to be announced on Monday at noon Pacific Standard Time. Uh, we had a couple of nuggets drop during. Basically, from the duration between our last podcast and and this one, first and foremost, the Blazers put a nice little bow on the summer, and they they extended C.J. McCollum for three additional years, so his contract runs, I believe, five years total, about $157, $160 million, and Sage, I was pleasantly surprised to see that Woj bomb uh, noty pop up on my phone because C.J. was eligible to be a part of that vaunted 2021 free agency class that had Kawhi, Paul George, Giannis Antetokounmpo, I mean, just a lot of heavy hitters. And like Dame, CJ's really not chancing it, not messing around. Portland is his home and very fortunate that we do not have to go through an unrestricted free agency with with CJ McCollum. And a lot of people may have thought, oh, you know, this is Dame's show. Maybe CJ wants to take his you know, chance at running his own team. But no, they, they are content and enjoy playing with one another. And I think that speaks volumes. Uh, what was already a fantastic offseason basically was about as good as it could have realistically got. Portland ties up CJ, ties up Dame. Their backcourt, the, the contracts pretty much run parallel in terms of duration. They get their upper management and coaching staff situated and extended. They find a, a void, a fill-in for Yusuf Nurkic and Hassan Whiteside, and they upgraded the overall talent, getting guys like Kent Bazemore and returning Rodney Hood, which to me is still one of the best moves of the summer that any team has done. Really, the only setback, I think, was Zach Collins uh, tearing the ligament in that ankle, but should only keep him out two months. We'll be back by the start of the season. Oh, so he misses the entire training camp? I mean, he's out two months. Shit. Well, that, that that's the thing. Like, when I first heard it, it was like a few weeks, and now it's a, it's a month, two months. So that, that sucks that he loses out on the chance to work with Hassan Whiteside in this in the summer and get that that chemistry and continuity because that's what's important for our bigs is for them to trust each other and to know each other's strengths and weaknesses defensively so they know they don't have to send that aggressive help when it's not needed and give up you know a score to the other big so that it sucks that they don't have that summer and that workout to work with with one another I mean like Hassan Whiteside's gonna be trusting anthony tolliver to start out camp which that that's a bummer because the time when uh it's the worst to get 
an injury like this is right now because of the, the training camp. I mean, I would much rather have it in the summer than during the season. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But to start the year, you got you to gotta, you gotta get your best players playing with one another. You don't want that awkwardness during the year. Obviously, you don't want Zach to be injured now, but still, given the circumstances, it's better than it happening during the the regular season. And we also still have, you know, Scalabissier in, in the background who could step up and, and play some really solid minutes next to, to Hassan. I do still think we'll see Zach get to know Hassan as a person and the whole team kind of gel together because uh, I think Damon CJ are planning another San Diego trip. And fortunately, there has been a lot of player movement league-wide. So I think you'll see a lot of teams kind of stumble over their own feet, moving towards you know training camp and even into the regular season. So as long as the beginning of the regular season isn't too devastating, I think the Blazers will have... They'll be on level playing ground with, with the rest of the league just because of how much change has occurred. But the Blazers did get some good news. During the C.J. McCollum press conference, Neil Olshay mentioned that Yusuf Nurkic was either at or ahead of his schedule. And I think that would be massive to get the big man back before the All-Star break. I just don't think he's going to be Yusuf Nurkic this year. But him being back is huge. Just more body and more health. But, like, I think it's irresponsible for us as fans and broadcasters to be like, yo, Yusuf Nurkic day one is going to be back. I think that's a little bit scary for, for people to, to spread that. I hope he, I hope he plays this year. I just don't think he's going to be as good. I don't think he's going to be a consistently good player. I mean, you look at Paul George, you look at Gordon Hayward, that first year back after a major injury like this, they weren't the same. They were minutes restrictions. They just weren't the same. And you saw with Paul George, it took him a full year and change to get to where he is the elite Paul George. And then Gordon Hayward has been inconsistent as hell coming back this next the year after his major injury. So I want to give people in Portland just like be patient with the guy. He put up amazing numbers this year, and all respect to him for that. But to expect him to come back day one or week one month one and be the same guy the same monster that he was just just give him some time because he, he will return to the beast and hopefully he returns to that form around playoff time if he's able to get a couple months under his feet before you know the postseason kicks off but sage why we're here we're gonna throw it back a bit back to 92 the last time the trailblazers were in the nba finals and in particular, game two against the Chicago Bulls. What were your what were your first thoughts watching watching that game? You know, we watched basketball in 2018, 2019 eyes. Damn, it's so it's so compact in the paint. Where's the spacing? There's like one one three point shooter per team, one specialized three point shooter per team. Everybody's in the middle. Every time Clyde or MJ posted up. You saw three or four hands in his face. So it makes me like cringe thinking, man, in 19, just think if they built that team with a bunch of shooters and rebounders and, you know, guys that can spread the floor for Clyde, just how amazing he would be or how much more MJ would rock that shit if he had some damn spacing. So the first thing was, damn, spacing was non-existent. And then, uh, man, I wish, I wish 1992 had... HD quality film because I didn't know if it was straight wet three pointers or air balls. but like yo it, it was entertaining to see something so completely different than what we see in 2019 with the spacing and the passing this shit was this shit was fucking rough and tumble and athletic as fuck there was just wasn't that much spacing like I looked at uh, basketball reference for that year and Blazers had three shooters the, the fourth person, Clyde, uh, no, Cliff Robinson, shot 10 three-pointers that season. 10! But, like, yo, the spacing, the three-point shooting, it's such a different experience than what we're used to in 2019 when... It was really interesting watching that game through the 2019 lens. And you mentioned the three shooters. 
Ainge, Porter, and Drexler. Portland was a little bit ahead of ahead of its time. They they had a lot of three point shooters for that era. I believe they were third or fourth in the league in in total made three pointers during the the ninety two season. And just hearing the announcers like literally bash the Blazers every time they took an outside jumper made me want to pull my hair out because to them basketball was a nothing but post up drive to the basket or bully ball like any shot outside of the paint or from the free throw line was a bad shot and it, it was just really you could almost hear them gasp when when Terry Porter would stroll up to the three point line and stop on a dime and just pull up i mean today that that happens not that happens every every fast break Every fast break, that shit happens. And the fact that the Bulls had one specialized shooter, one, like, goddamn, like, yo, the Blazers did, last year's Blazers had Al Farouk Aminu, who wasn't a great shooter, but he was a specialized shooter, like, Dame and CJ can shoot. We had so many shooters. And to go back to watch the Bulls, after their first championship, only have one legitimate shooter? Goddamn, that spacing and the shooting is so crazy. We we're spoiled in today's a, a today's game with the the spacing and the shooting and the how pretty the game looks compared to physic the the straight one hundred percent physicality. It it made me so impressed by Clyde's and Mike's ability to pass because those lanes are congested. It's like six people in the paint, and you're threading the needle to a guy cutting. God damn, th- those guys. Obviously, they're talented, but like seeing that shit in the 2019 lens of basketball. Well, you also look at at scoring and just because it was a different type of style, it may not have been as free flowing and open as today's game. But I still found a lot of enjoyment watching it, knowing a three pointer wasn't going to be jacked up at every opportunity and scoring certainly didn't drop off. Uh, I believe the 92 Blazers averaged 111 points per game. So they averaged more than they actually did in 2019. So there is some val- uh, validity in in working the paint, taking a better shot, and not just relying on, on on quick threes. Now, I'm not saying one style is better than the other, but it's just it was just a different era. But what I do truly miss is the post-up game. And whether it was Mike on the block against Drexler, I mean, he was just uh, a magician with his back to the basket. The shimmies, the shimmy left, right, and then going left, that's, that, that is some skilled basketball. You know, Duckworth posting up against Cartwright or, or Cliff Robinson, you know, going up against Horace Grant using his, his length. You know, Cliff Robinson was ahead of his time as well. He was one of the first stretch fours um, if you remember, Duckworth injured his hand in 1990, uh, game three against the Dallas Mavericks. Cliff Robinson, as a rookie, started at the five and took on David Robinson. That was a seven-game series. Duck didn't return until game seven. Portland obviously won in seven. But he had the ability to guard three through five on the front line, take his game all the way out to the three-point line, and just rise up above players and also finish in traffic. He was the beginning of, of the prototypical forward that we see in today's NBA. And that's one thing I love about this Blazer team is they have guys that would really transcend eras. It, it wouldn't matter. You put them in there, they're going to produce. And, and in some instances, to your point, I think Drexler is even better. I think Jerome Kersey becomes even better with the game more open and more three-point shots, more long rebounds. What was the best element of that Blazers team? It was getting on the break and running. Those guys were thoroughbreds who other teams feared in the open court. Giving them more fast break opportunities, they might have put up 120, 125 in today's NBA. So for them... Could you imagine Jerome on a team like Atlanta or New Orleans with the fast, fast, fast pace and them pushing even on made baskets. Dude, Drexler and Jerome would be... Porter probably averages 25 with all of the extra three-point attempts. I mean, that that team was fantastic. Mm-hmm. And you you look at game two, obviously Portland gets destroyed in game one. I think that is the, the lasting memory uh, of that series is the Jordan shrug. You know, Portland lost by 33 in game one. It, w- it mm-hmm. was a non-contest. 
but they were able to bounce back just like they did in 1990, winning the second game on the road. They ended up winning 115-104 in, in overtime. And what was incredible about this one, Sage, is you're, you're watching it. The Blazers jump out. The Bulls obviously make their run. And then Drexler picks up his sixth foul with about four minutes left, and the team is down 10. Even though you knew they were going to win the game, watching it, you had to kind of be in like, you kind Oh, no, I thought you fucked up and were like, watch this game too. We lose, but it's entertaining. I was like, all right, man, what the, what, what the hell have you got me doing, man? We've made an agreement that every time we do a throwback Thursday, it was going to be for a Blazers win. Did you mess up? Like, there's no way we, no, there's no way. With Drexler out, how are we going to have the offense to score and, you know, lock up the best player ever, you know? There's there's no way. And then, god damn. That Blazers team, straight up, had depth. It had so much depth. To have Danny Ainge come in, had Cliff come in. And you look at what the Blazers accomplished without Drexler. And I have the, the 92 video yearbook. Um, I think it's called like running down a dream or making it happen. It was one of those two. And I watched that constantly as a kid after the game, Clyde really just embodied everything that I wanted to become as a future athlete or to look up to in an athlete. And he said, you know, I was on the bench I could have sat and pouted, but I needed to be there for my team. So I became the biggest cheerleader possible. And the team really rallied around that. And if you look at those possessions down the stretch, Porter hits a couple of big buckets on on the baseline. Uh, Danny Ainge was just magnificent in the give and go, getting Kersey going. They, they found Duckworth to tie mm-hmm. the game. I mean, for all of the, the, the shit that Duckworth got, and I think undeser- undeservingly so, he was one of the most clutch players when we needed a, a big bucket. In game four of 91 in Utah in the second round, he put up 31 points, basically made that a five-game series. In this game, he came through for the Blazers with a lot of buckets down the stretch, and they really rode that momentum where they they had they had everything going, and you started to see them play with confidence. You know, Terry Porter hits that big three in overtime and holds up his hand as he talks to to the Chicago audience. You know, Danny Ainge is streaking down 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 the court. You know, they they take what the announcers thought was a chance, but they kept they played to win the game rather than not to lose, and I think that's what was that's why they were able to tie up that series. Ninety two, I was one years old, so obviously. I well, I didn't watch it live, but like I knew Horace Grant was a fantastic basketball player. I did not know how athletically freaky that dude is, because in that that game he established his dominance. He got like six blocks. He, yo, dude, he looked like Draymond Green with bounce. He he's his him defensively. He was he was so damn impressive. Jordan Pippen and Horace Grant. That is some athletic players. But you know what? The Blazers also had some damn horses. You look at Horace Grant, that was the series. So if, if you look at the Chicago Bulls, obviously the Pistons were the team that they had to just they climb the mountain and, and overcome for, for them to finally win the ultimate prize. And, and they, they didn't do that in 90. They lost it in game seven. But in 91, you kind of saw Scottie Pippen take that next step. I think in 92, that was the year that Horace Grant took the next step. And you mentioned, you know, he had, he had a lot of blocks um, in game three, a game where both teams looked really sluggish and Chicago ended up winning, I think 84, 74. It was Horace Grant who had 18 points, eight rebounds and eight assists. And he was the reason they won. You know, Jordan had two games where he had really big outbursts, but aside from those, it was Horace Grant who who really outplayed Buck Williams and going into that series, Portland probably mm-hmm. thought they were going to get an equal, you know, play between Buck and Horace, but Horace was, was just younger and he was, you know, showed why he was a, a future all-star and it was hard for the Blazers to, to, to match. But if, if, if I'm a Blazer fan and, I, and I'm looking, looking back at that series and I encourage everyone else. Well, we will drop the YouTube 
of this game in the show notes. So you, if you want to watch it, you absolutely can. And you look at Portland, they only win two games uh, of this series. But aside from the Jazz in 97, the Blazers were the only team to actually tie up the Bulls through four games at, at 2-2. So they came back and they won game four, 93-88. Watching games, so I also watched game four, and Sage, we think the media is crazy now with social media and it, and it being kind of like a nonstop cycle. Well, when television and radio, and maybe print, that, that was all available for the audiences back then, it was nothing but pressure for those Portland Trailblazers and, and Clyde Drexler specifically as i watched the intro so every, every child who grew up in the 90s relishes the nba on nbc the theme song the intros the basically the time and care they put into every one of those packages they were specifically written and you either had marv albert or bob costas you know a really iconic voice you know dick enberg reading that and for game four you know obviously portland was down 2-1 they spent nearly 90 seconds just on Drexler and how he could either become one of the superstars that finally got over the hump and won his first title, or if he's going to look like these other, you know, seven or eight stars that were good, but just not good enough to win a title, basically putting the entire series on his shoulders. And as I watched game four, I not only felt that Clyde had the entire weight of the world on his shoulders, but the Blazer team did as well. I mean, they played with so much pressure. And I think if they had been able to relax a bit, I truly believe that it would have been a different outcome. And I think a lot of that pressure stemmed from, from 91 and obviously in 1990 getting to the finals and losing in five, that was just all icing on the cake because nobody expected us to get that far in 91. You start out 19 and one, you end the season on a 16 game win streak. You win a franchise record, 63, wins. You have the top seed in the entire playoffs, but they lost to the Lakers. They got thoroughly outplayed in in games three and game four in Los Angeles. They blew a 12 point lead going into game one. And it was a an older Lakers team that looking back, Portland had no business losing to. And I think after that, I think it took a toll on the team because they came back the next year and they put up 57 wins, but they they definitely weren't as dominant. They they got absolutely embarrassed in, in March on national television against the sh- same Chicago Bulls. And I think it just wore them down mentally. And when you have all of that pressure, you, you play with it. And I could just see them pressing. I could see them trying to get their fast break started. They were making uncharacteristically bad passes. But it, it's really unfortunate that all that pressure took its toll and you could even, I was even watching, you know, I wa- I've watched, they played 21 games that postseason. I've watched 14 of them this summer. Um, some aren't available and some, I, I just didn't choose to watch like the finals games we, we have lost, but looking at specifically game one in 92 against the jazz in the conference finals, they had a, they, they also did it. They NBC also did a promo and they're talking about the fans believe this is the year. This is the year. This is the year. And you have a guy in the front row who has a shirt that says, just don't screw this up. I mean, you look at it as Portland, even back then, extremely small market. The Blazers were essentially in the fishbowl, all eyes on them. So not only do you have the pressure from yourself, but you have the pressure from the community. Great fans, but also they, they wanted nothing more than a championship. And it was championship or bust, truly. So... It's understandable that they played with with all of that pressure, but I wish they hadn't because, as you mentioned and as we've discussed through this episode, they had transcendent players. They had the talent to beat the Chicago Bulls, but Chicago was just a little bit more cool, a little more calm, a little more collective in in the half court, and they just didn't make as many mistakes as as the Blazers did. I mean, even talking about media, I remember that they're – was like an entire segment in the second quarter about Kevin Duckworth, him feeling like if they do lose, he's gone. And that type of pressure is legit. And like you've mentioned on many podcasts about Duck and how 
the announcer said about Duck. He's a sensitive guy, so hearing all of this, you know, it's all on him, it's all on him type of shit in 92, that's, that's, that's not cool. Like, he's a very good player, but I think Drexler, it, it, it needed to be more on Drexler than to target somebody who had a huge sensitivity of being called out and it, it affects players. But in 92, like, what the what what could people do other than watch TV and listen to the radio and hear like, you know, if they lose, Duck's gone type of thing. And did didn't he stay a few more years or did he leave? Was he gone in ninety two? No, he actually was dealt for Harvey Grant after the ninety three season. And so you know you look at, at Kevin Duckworth and he was an all star in eighty nine and an all star in ninety one. You know he was basically. You know, through 88 to 91, basically a 17 point per game score, going to give you seven, eight boards and shoot about 48, 49% from the field. But in 92, his numbers really declined. And it was interesting to see because he was still extremely young. He was 26 during his last all-star appearance in 91. So he was only 27 during these finals. And he goes from 16 points down to 11 and he his shooting percentage dropped, you know, two percentage points, and his field goal attempts went from about thirteen and a half to nine and a half. So he was a less a part of the offense. Was did uh, Porter take a bigger role, or did Drexler take a bigger role, or did the bench guys contribute more, or was it just it was Cliff? Cliff started taking a, a a larger role as well because you also have to remember Jerome Kersey's production dropped pretty significantly. Um, Cliff's ascension that made uh... Cliff's ascension, but also I think Duckworth let all of that negativity affect him, and his career really was never the same after that that Lakers series in '91. And again, he he was still extremely young. He was skilled. Like he took Bill Cartwright into the post and got a few nice jump hooks in the mm-hmm. first quarter. He absolutely dominated Mark Eaton in in the in the Utah series and. I think it was his weight. He was just really, he really had a tough time battling the, the, those weight issues. Did he gain a lot this year or that year? He was always a thick boy, you know? Yeah, he was, but shockingly sprite, shockingly nimble for a big guy. So salute to him. Like he was busting his Basketball ass. reference listed him at about 275. And then I also have basketball cards that I've been looking through. It seemed once he moved out of Portland, he really started to to gain um, more weight. And then ultimately, by the time he unfortunately passed in 2008, you know, he was, you know, pretty, pretty large, unfortunately. So I guess, you know, a side note, don't talk shit about, you know, your, your team or other players because they are human beings and some are more thin skinned and there's nothing wrong with being sensitive. And you just never know what type of impact you are making on another human being's life. So this is just a game. Like, don't take it too personal. In that game, he was definitely busting his ass. Like in the games that we've watched of uh, Duckworth uh, for these throwback Thursdays, he's always been remarkably nimble and fast for a uh, guy that's seven feet 290 or whatever whatever he actually was he was he was a big boy but he was running he was busting his ass you don't see many centers today running or a play that stuck out to me was there cliff robinson airballed the jumper it went out of, it was going out of bounds and then clyde dived in the crowd and threw it in, and uh, they scored two, a really easy two off it. You know, it, it's you don't you don't see a lot of star players risk their bodies like that. But man, Clyde did that shit so instantly to try and save it, save that possession. You know, he, he passes in, into Buck. I remember, I, I know the, the the play by heart. What what you're talking about? Um, I think my favorite play, maybe one of my favorite Clyde plays of all time, happened in that first quarter. I think he shot an air ball and they got the ball and they were pushing it up, but we stole it at about the half court line. He gets it on the left-hand side and just goes up in one hand, like sidewinds over Bill Cartwright and just, yeah, he blamed it on. Like it was one of the best in-game dunks I've ever seen. 
He wanted to crown them. He wanted to crown Bill Cartwright right there. There was no ifs, ands, or buts about it. He was he was looking for blood on that one. But that was a, like that's a momentum changing dunk right there. Like that's a momentum changer. So him looking to looking to end somebody's life on that dunk was a really uh, nice move. And you know he had the best playoff of, of his. In. This this was peak Drexler, and I think this is why the Blazers were actually able to make the finals in, in 92. I think, you know, Duckworth slipped a year. I think Buck was obviously getting, getting a little bit older. Same thing with Jerome. You know, you get Porter and Drexler and, you know, the ascension of Cliff Robinson. But it was really Clyde that put it all together. You know, he had 26, 7-7 seven and seven on, you know, 47% shooting. And he was playing about 40 minutes a night, also getting you, you know, a seal and a half and, and a block per game how many assists sorry i wasn't listening almost you know almost eight so he, he averaged nearly nearly a triple double every time he went out on that floor um you know I, I watched game three of the lakers series in 92 kind of surreal to think that the rodney king riots were happening immediately during that contest which actually postponed basketball for a few days and they actually had to play game four on the campus of unlv in the thomas and Mack center but during that game, I mean, Drexler had 42 points, like I think nine rebounds, 10 assists. I mean, everything to keep the team in there. I was watching that game and we had a chance to win the game. It was tied and we were on a fast break. Time is ticking down. Clyde gets it to Buck. Buck goes in for a, a layup on the right side of the goal. And a Laker fan jumped up and was blocking the camera. I knew we had lost the game, but I'd never known how. And I was like, well, did the lay- there's no way the layup missed. Could you imagine watching that live and not knowing what happened? Yeah, you just insane. literally blocked the camera. And then you see the, the reverse angles and, you know, Terry Teagle kind of looked like he was going to take a charge and made Buck contort his body. Um, unfortunately, we, we lost that one in overtime. It would have been sweet to, to sweep the Lakers, but... You know, watching so many of of these these games, the 92 Blazers were incredibly talented. I think of all of the Western Conference teams we played, Phoenix in the second round, I think, was much more difficult than Utah. Um, They always gave us problems. It took us six to beat them and 90 to go to the finals and five. Kevin Johnson was a bad motherfucker. Kevin Johnson was quick as lightning. I mean, Jeff Hornacek, the Blazers did an incredible job. Drexler really shut him down. Um, throughout those five games, but you know, Tom Chambers kind of was was revitalized, and you know, oh yeah, it was the Hornacek, KJ, and Chambers. Yeah, they also had Savalos. They had um, Mark West. Um, shit, who else? Andrew Lang, Tim Perry, and Dan Marley. I mean, so they were. Oh damn, they had some shooters. They had a lot of shooters, and the Blazers played one of I think the most iconic games of that postseason when. They went into Phoenix for game four and ended up winning 153 to 151 in double overtime. I think at that time, it was the highest scoring postseason game of of all time. And it was stressful just re-watching it, but I, it, it felt almost like watching that four overtime game against the Nuggets that, that we just... You were watching history. Yeah, you were watching history. Um, man, there was a play in the night, in game two where... You know, Clyde was chilling, like, in the, you know, uh, 15 feet away from the basket and just did a dot to uh, Porter for an open shot. I was just like, God damn, this dude's so talented. This dude's so talented. It's a shame that this scheme is so, like, it's so compressed. I couldn't see the angle of the pass until it was, you know, completed. But, like, dude had vision, dude had uh, athleticism. That's what was really... Interesting to watch about, you know, the 92 Blazers. All we heard was, and all I've heard, you know, since since then was fantastic on the break. But, man, they are really terrible in, in the half court. And at times, they, they did self-destruct. They like to take the quick shot way too often. And they had a real trouble getting Terry Porter off in that series. And I think that is another reason they, they don't have a banner in, in the, the, the Rose Garden right now was... Porter, as hot as he was, he, I think, was one of the main reasons we won 
that Utah series. He completely obliterated John Stockton. I mean, you think coming out in game one, 26 points, four, or excuse me, six of eight from downtown. Followed it up game two, 41 points, four or five from downtown. And then in games five and six, 24 points and 18 points, uh, three of five from downtown in game five. I mean, Porter just made Stockton look extremely human. And Mm -hmm. that performance in that series is one of the main reasons I believe John Stockton isn't the player that everyone thinks he is. And I put Terry Porter up on a higher pedestal because he, for two consecutive postseasons, owned that dude. I mean, Terry Porter was a bad motherfucker, and I don't think he gets the credit that he's deserved. But for whatever reason, it was really hard to get him, get him off. And the 90 Why do you think it was hard for him to get involved in the offense? Was it he was trying to set up Clyde or set up the teams? Or was he not aggressive in getting his own shot? What do you think the reason was he wasn't getting as biz as he should have been? I mean, I'm just going to list the shot attempts 1 through 6. So game 1, 9. Game 2, 17. Game 3, 7. Game 4, 10. Game 5, 12. Game 6, 15. So by 5 and 6, they were able to get him up to up to his norm. But, you know, if if you're supposed to be the second all-star, you're, you're the Pippin to, to Drexler's Jordan. I, I think a lot of it had to do with the Blazers in, in the half court. They played with a lot of pressure. And when you do that, you often take the first shot that comes available to you. I, I think they didn't make a, a conscious effort to get him the ball. Um, watching... Mm-hmm. Game four, they actually talked about the plays that they were trying to draw up to get him open, um, running him off of stagger screens because game three, all of the talk was Terry Porter only got seven attempts. This, this can't happen. Um, Chicago didn't leave him. Um, we talked about the Blazers being a transcendent team and having three three-point shooters and running up and down the floor, but Chicago with their length on the wing and factoring Horace Grant, Jordan Pippen, their athleticism. Portland wasn't able to make some of the passes they were used to because these guys were like free safeties on the basketball court. Yeah, they were just jumping passing lanes, bro. And, you know, you have to tip your hat to Chicago for playing fantastic defense. Um, Mm -hmm. But the times, I think if Portland had reduced the amount of pressure they were playing with, didn't force as many opportunities. I mean, I've seen they could have had five to ten more possessions every game just from unforced errors. And really tried to get Porter the basketball. Like you mentioned, Drexler dotting passes to him. Um, I think maybe playing him off ball a little bit more. I think the Blazers really flourished. And this is something that I noticed watching both two and four. That the lineup that I would have went with. And I don't blame Rick Adelman because it really went against conventional wisdom back in 1992. But I would have went small. One, Bill Mm. Cartwright is not scaring anybody. Two, Porter, Drexler, and Ainge as the three guards. Not only are they your three best shooters, but they're probably your three three best passers. And they all play pretty stingy defense. And then I would have put Kersey at the four because he could run like a thoroughbred and he could he could he could body horse. And then Cliff and then Cliff Robinson. I'd play Uncle Cliffy at the five. Um, he can guard both horse and and uh, Bill Cartwright, and he's just so athletic. I think we, unfortunately, our front court of Duckworth and Buck Williams just didn't match up athletically in a run in a running gun game with these athletic Chicago Bulls. So I would have went a little bit more athletic, um, and I think that would have also won won the series. But obviously, that's you know twenty five plus years of hindsight. Yeah, and, and I don't I don't think going three guard lineups in ninety two would have been the conventional norm. I bet the newspapers and radio shows and TV would have shitted on him for it, for that decision. But it now, now, like, hell yeah, that would have been great. Like, uh, I, I, th- I think that, that thought process is a little ahead of its time, but I think it definitely would work. And I would have loved to see Horace Grant and Jerome Kersey battle each and every possession for supremacy, because that would have been fucking fun. Uh, man, like, to see... To see the athleticism and skill involved in these games. Oh, actually, I I remember a lot of fast, bad shots being take, taking place in that third and fourth. So, like, if Jerome Kersey wasn't taking mid-range jumpers, I bet if they swung it to 
corner, he would have gotten more shots in that third. Because he really exploded in the fourth. Like, there was a lot of bad shots being taken place in that in that third quarter, especially. The third quarter, so growing up, the, the running joke between me and my parents and my grandparents was, let's just get through this third quarter. Like, we knew it was inevitable. Like, the, the Blazers in third quarters just, just don't mix. And every time... Even in 2019, if we have a third, a good third quarter, my mind is blown because I've been so trained to negative results. I mean, we're, we're talking, the Blazers got outscored in nearly every third quarter that, that they lost. Um, I think it was 32-16 in game two or something of that nature. Um, in game four, they, I think they pushed Chicago. They both scored 16 points. But again, you're only getting 16 it just seemed like the Blazers always had one bad quarter. And unfortunately, the, the final quarter of that season was in game six against the Chicago Bulls. And Portland had the best chance, I think, of any team to force a game seven. I mean, they, they were up by 15 points, but unfortunately got outscored 33 to 14 in, in, that, in that fourth quarter. And what really pisses me off is it was Scottie Pippen and four reserves that got it going. And that's where being a little bit shaky in the half court and taking those quick shots can lead to those runs. So the Blazers were always known as a team that can go up by 20 in an instant, but they can give it right back. Um, and it just, it just happened. And for the most part, it was those, those third quarters. And to be honest, I don't know what, what it was, what they were doing, what they weren't doing. I wasn't there. It looked like a lot of quick shots to me. It was a lot of quick shots for non-shooters taking mid-range jumpers. It was really interesting to see the 92 Blazers. And I, I, I kind of go back and forth. Like, what was the best team of the bunch? 90, 91, 92. You know, 91 had the best record. 92, they, they got the furthest. 90, 1990, they probably kept the finals closer than they did in, in 92. Um, but you just kind of go back and, and you look at the players and where they were at in their career. So even though there was a lot of continuity, you had a little bit of fluctuation in terms of who was rising and who was falling and who was kind of staying static. But the one thing about Jerome Kersey that I loved is he averaged probably... Oh trying to bring this up right now he averaged 12 point yeah he averaged 12.6 points per game in in the regular season you know nothing you know it was definitely a far cry from when he put up you know 19 and in 88 and then he had 18 the following year and you know 16 during that that first finals run and Jerome Kersey was a gamer I mean you talk about players and, and load management you know Jerome from 87 through 92 played at minimum 73 games. And he was a guy who you're talking about throwing his body on the floor. I mean, going people remember Gerald Wallace. Jerome Kersey was a souped up much better version than Gerald Wallace. And he was going out and he was not only doing it in the regular season, but multiple deep playoff runs. And when you needed him, you said the words that he is, an absolute gamer. Um, you know, you look back throughout that 92 run game five against Utah puts up 29, 10 and five, um, game three against Utah, 26 and nine, uh, against the Suns, He was everywhere. I mean, you look game two, he had 25 and nine game three, 15 and nine, four and five to close out the series goes for 21 and 10 and then 16, 12 and eight with five steals. So to close out the Suns, 16, 12 boards, 8 assists, 5 steals, 2 blocks. I mean, this this guy was a mammoth. Mm. But again, just like you probably didn't get as much from, from Buck and Duck, I don't think the Blazers, and, and Terry Porter, I don't think the Blazers got enough from Jerome Kersey in that finals. Um, and I don't, I don't think Pippen completely outplayed him by, by any stretch of the imagination, but it just felt like, the Blazers had had Drexler locked in, and even though he took some, some bad shots, he, he was there as a facilitator and a defender and a rebounder. 
just they didn't get that second or third consistent blazer to to go mm-hmm. with the show. And sometimes if you're the star player, you got to take them shots. Cuz like I remember the announcers, I don't know, uh saying these role players give the ball to the stars with 5 seconds left and the stars create magic out of those 5 seconds. And that's what that's what Clyde and MJ did that 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 game that we watched. It was it was pretty magical to see those two just body each other up and use creativity in a very small space to just show magic. It's truly infuriating to me that that Clyde was not chosen as the original 10 for the Dream Team. Given the team success, how fantastic he was, and some of the reasoning Believe it or not, I was you know watching that game four against Phoenix, and that was the day it was announced that Drexler was the additional two. Magic Johnson was a commentator, and he mentioned that some people may have thought, well, and this wasn't him projecting this, this is what the outside world was projecting, mm-hmm. that why do you need Clyde when you already have Michael? And, and that just kind of blew my mind because those two would have complemented each other so fantastically. Oh, yeah. And really, they are completely different players Watching Clyde more and more, he reminds me of what we have now in in LeBron James. He is, yeah, that's it. He can run the floor. He can handle the rock, rebounds, steals, blocks, and he is one of the best passers and most unselfish players that we had in, in this game. Mm-hmm. Um, Jordan, on the other hand, was really a fantastic defender, but just a score, a pure pure score. And one of the probably the best we have ever seen at, at putting the ball in the bucket. So it was weird that they were always compared when they were so different. But at the end of the day, yeah, I mean, like six, seven, six, six, all star. I mean, superstar shooting guards, and I, I get, I get the. I don't agree with the take, but I get the take. Be, uh, but I do think that those two are very different as basketball players. But, uh, I mean, shit. <laughs> he might not have been the p- part of the first 10, but he was on the team. And, you know, that matters. It does, but um, friend of the podcast and host of, of Women's Hoops and Talk, um, Tara, had a tweet where she found uh, a Dream Team puzzle. And, I, and she's like, hey, where are the other two players? And I chimed in mentioning that the original 10 were announced in the fall of 91 and the other two weren't announced until May of 92. So me as a seven year old growing up, you know, for Christmases and birthdays, I had dream team paraphernalia and swag Mm -hmm. out, out at the Wahoo. And we're talking starting lineup figures, um, stickers, cards, you know, you name it. And it was so disheartening because there was no Clyde. And that's the guy I wanted. And you also look just just if you listen to the game, either two or four, the announcers would shit on the Blazers like nobody's business. I mean, Chicago could be taking the same shots and missing them. Not a word. For whatever reason, the national media media hated us. I mean, they called us the, the you know, called us whiners. Uh, you know, I've read the book with, with Kerry Eggers and, and Dwight James against the world. Um and just seemed like no matter what we did, it was never good enough. And so you look at Portland not getting a Christmas game this year, despite being a conference finalist. You know, whether that's good or bad, it's to me, it's a sign of, of disrespect. And so that's why, you know, we always wear a chip on our shoulder. You know, I tweeted this out too. Um, Eric Gunderson asked, answered a question from uh, Hoops Mag. You know, have the Blazers reached their ceiling? And he, he said, point blank, we're doing this again, huh? That is my point exactly. Why 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 are the Blazers the, the NBA punching bag when it comes to you know a treadmill team or, or mediocrity and you know it, it's always been that way at least since I've been a fan. So um if you ever think that I'm I'm being too sensitive about it, it's just because it, it's been there for, for 30 plus years. And you know, I guess it'll take a title for, for people to finally give us our our due. But you know, it's it's kind of tough being out here all alone in the in the Pacific Northwest. Back at the 92 Blazers. Are you surprised that that was the end of their run? The way that they were talking about the series and how if they didn't get it done this year, it was over. That kind of swayed my opinion on it. Because, like, 
it was a lot of foreshadowing of what actually happened. So no, but if like if I was re- watching the game on mute, I probably would assume that they would have ran it back a few more years. What's interesting is. 92-93, no blazer aside from Buck Williams, rotation blazer, was turning 30 going into the season. Yeah, they you. So they still were young, but also we're talking 27 years ago, health and medicine wasn't where it's at today, and Drexler's knee flared up multiple times throughout the regular season, and he played with, with knee pain throughout the playoffs. Well, he goes out and he rightfully so, plays in, in, in the Olympics. He misses quite a few times, for quite a few games. Jerome Kersey, I think, missed 16 or 17 games that year. Um, for whatever reason, a lot of the players really regressed or were injured. And mm-hmm. I mean, hey, you, injury bugs injury happen. bugs happen. And you have, you know, they even brought in Rod Strickland and Mario Eli. I mean, that, that was those were really good free agency signings. But I also thought it was a mistake and I didn't really until I watched all of this 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 run in in '92, and bringing Danny Ainge back, I thought he brought a, a calming presence to to the roster. Yes, he was 33, 34 years old, but you know he cut his teeth with the Boston Celtics, won a ring with them in '86, uh, wanted to come back. Um, reasonable deal, probably 1.2, 1.3 million dollars a season, even even back in '92 was was pretty reasonable, and. Portland played their best with that three-guard lineup, knowing you had a lot of miles on Jerome Kersey. You could maybe reduce his role, knowing you had Cliff Robinson. And I just thought it was a mistake that that general manager Jeff Petrie didn't bring him back. I thought that was the first kind of building block that, that fell, and the Blazer Empire kind of came down. And just knowing that we didn't have Ainge and all of the injuries, it, it's just a bummer that that team wasn't able to to stick together. I believe they finished 51 and 31. They they lost in four games to the Spurs in, in the first round. They had home court advantage. Um, unfortunately, Drexler didn't play in game one injury and, and they lost and it was a competitive series, but that was really the, the end of, of that era. And I think a lot of it, and I think we're going to see this happen to the Golden State Warriors this year. I think mentally they were just cooked. So, Physically, they may have been 29, 30. Mentally, they could have been 40, 50, 60. Like, I think mentally... That's a lot of extra basketball games that they've had on their knees and ankles and but I But bodies. I just think, like, mentally, like, all of that pressure, I, I, I just, you know, they're human. And I, I think yeah. it, it kind of got to them. And, you know, you're, you're talking about, you know, Duckworth thinking, if we don't win it all this year, I'm gone. What is everybody else in that locker room thinking? I mean, you're going through that season. Like, you you have climbed that hill three times. You've gotten to the apex twice. You just haven't been able to, you know, reach up and grab what's hanging there. And we saw the same thing happen with the Buffalo Bills. Four straight mm-hmm. appearances, they just couldn't get it done. But that doesn't mean that that team wasn't successful. I think you should take a lot yeah. of pride in that if you're a Bills fan. Just like I take a lot of pride in what we were able to accomplish as a Blazer fan, that's a really successful run to have over mm-hmm. three years. And it really shaped who I am as a person because that was the team that got me into Blazer basketball. You were a big Charles Barkley fan growing up. Yeah, that was my guy. Reading, again, that that same book, Against the World, there were trade rumors for, for Charles. Charles wanted to be a Blazer. It was one of his top three mm. destinations. Um Certain rumors said it was going to be Kersey, Duckworth, and two picks. Others had it being Ainge, Kersey, and Duckworth for for Barkley or whatever it was to make it work cap-wise. Chuck ends up going to Phoenix for, I think it was Andrew Lang, Tim Perry, and Jeff Hornacek. Mm. Obviously a fantastic deal for the Suns. Got them to where the Blazers were to game six of the 93 finals. He was the MVP. He was arguably the best player on that Olympic roster, even including Michael Jordan. Heinz, I mean, Drexler didn't really want to break up that team. Drexler was like Damian Lillard in the sense that if he had his way, he would keep the same core of guys around him forever. And you, you respect that loyalty. 
And I'm not saying whether you would or would not do that trade because from a basketball perspective, it's obviously a good trade, but we have a lot of sentimental value tied into what Kersey and Duckworth um, gave this franchise. But just looking at a core of Porter, Drexler, Robinson, and Barkley, like how nasty would that have been? Fucking destroying cats, bro. And I'd, it, it would have given them that extra, that extra star, that extra few years of dominance. That half-court dominance as well. I mean, you dump the mm-hmm. ball into Barkley, that's game over. I mean, you try and double. And all those easy Kobe assists, like Clyde just f- drives, and you got you got Cliff and Charles trying to tip that ball in after a miss? That would have been nasty. So if you're asking me, would I have traded for Charles if I was the Blazers? Absolutely. Because I'm just trusting what you said. If they were getting older and uh, more injured, I would have definitely brought in Charles to uh, give him that secondary star and uh, uh, shit, Stu just texted me. Uh, Give them that secondary star and uh, that extra firepower. I mean, yo, Barkley brought the Suns to the championship. Are you... it isn't that far of a reach to say Barkley and Drexler would have taken them to the chip. All right, Sage. NBA TV has been doing Team Week. They had just wrapped up with the Blazers, and they had a graphic. So I'm going to give you a choice. You have $15 to spend. Okay. Sheed and uh, Sheed and Kersey are on my team because they're one dollar. Yeah. So let me just let me just. So at a dollar, you've got Rashid Wallace, Jerome Kersey, Cliff Robinson, and Jim Paxson. At three dollars, you got Terry Porter, Arvita Sabonis, Brandon Roy, and CJ McCollum. And at five, you've got Clyde Drexler, Damian Lillard, Bill Walton, and Lamarcus Aldridge. Who do you want me to give you my five, or do you want to go first? Well, I'm just, I, you go first, but Sheed and Kersey better be on there because they're a dollar. This is team building. I, 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 as much as I know Bill Walton was one of the best players of all time, Drexler and Lillard are, are my favorites. And yeah. I think they, they are the top two Blazers right now. I've got, I got Dame. I've got Clyde. So that's 10. I have $5 left to spend. I went with Terry Porter at my $3 mark to get my backcourt mate with Dame. And then to round out my, my forwards, I went with Rasheed Wallace, who could play center. And Jerome Kersey, who could play the 3-4, and, and Clyde could play the 2-3. So I've got Dame, Porter, Drexler, Kersey, and Wallace as my five. So mine would be very similar, but uh, I already forgot the $3 ones. So could you uh, help me out on those? Sabonis, okay. Roy, uh-huh. and McCollum. Oh, okay. So I got Dame, Drexler. That's 10. And the... And then the $2 ones, obviously. Kersey and Wallace. Okay, who's your $3? <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm trying to figure out. <sighs> Was Brandon Roy a good three-point shooter? Yes, this is a bad question for me to ask, but whatever. Was he a good three-point shooter? I'm looking this up just for... Stat-wise, but my inkling was average. 34.8% from downtown. Okay, that's average. I might go CJ. I want to, I want a shooter on my team. So you'd go C. Okay, I like that. <laughs> the reason I went Porter is just because I think he's done it a little bit longer than CJ. I think CJ is... he could. He, but then you take the ball out of Dame's hands. Porter could play off ball. Okay. That that so that three dollar yeah. one was the toughest one for me. Be- yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's the word. Like it's obvious. Jerome and Sheet are one dollar. Like it, that's a bargain at twice the price or three times the price, I guess. So like obviously those two have to be in it to make the team work. And then Clyde and Dame, or you could go Bill, but whatever. Uh, having two of those and then the two dollar ones and then the three dollar one is probably the best way to build the team. It's it's. The $3 one, I, I liked how they had them laid out because it was the most difficult decision. I think of the three, Porter had the best career so far. I think CJ is probably the best pure scorer. And Brandon was probably the best player of, of the bunch. 
My question is, Dame was my point guard or my backcourt mate. We know how well he plays with CJ. I think it would be a similar fit with, with Terry. How do you think he would fit with Brandon Roy? I've been kind of going back and forth because Brandon liked to play a slow pace, liked to dribble the ball up the court, and he was very ball-dominant. Even though he was the point guard, he or the shooting guard by position, he was really our de facto point. Well, guess what I'm looking up right now. What was Brandon Roy's best year? 0809. I'm looking at my fa- well, second favorite stat ever to see how much he has. I, I'm a nerd. He had a high ass usage rate and it kept getting. Yeah, no. I mean, if if the usage rate's high, I don't think he and Dame would do well together as. Oh, oh, holy shit. Well, it, I, believe it or not, Brandon has a lower usage rate than uh, Dame did. His highest usage rate ever was. 27.4, and Dame's this year was 30. So he, Dame handles the ball way more than Brandon did. I think that, depending on your team around you, you could make it work. But if we're looking at Bla- like the, this list of Blazer players, it would not work just because there's other players that need the ball to be good. But if it was like Dame, Brandon, or non-dribbling wing, non like you would have to create a really good team around it to work but I think uh, uh, Dame and a Drexler would have worked way more because of the off ball nature of Drexler. Yeah, Drexler also like the ball in his hand so you're getting Dame, Roy and Drexler. I think that's just too much ball handling. Yeah, it's too much usage rate. Like no one else is going to touch the ball. Like to build a team you have to have like a players that mesh together. If you did Drexler, Roy and uh, Dame it's just like they're going to be fighting over the ball. You need to have, you know, passing. And, you know, when when three people want the ball, it doesn't really work. You know, you look at those Dell Demps, uh, New Orleans Pelicans with Drew, Tyreek, Eric Gordon, Anthony Davis, and Ryan Anderson. They all wanted the ball, and there's only one ball to play with. They just had too many high-usage rates players. Last thing on the 92 Blazers watching the Bulls and knowing how weak they were in the middle, if Portland had Arvidas Sabonis come over in, in his prime, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind we are at least three consecutive championships throughout that. So what you would what you've done with Duck? When did we draft Arvidas? 86. So we got so we got we got Clyde in 83, 14th pick. 84, everyone knows Sam Bowie, but we got Jerome Kersey in that second round. So mm-hmm. 84 was not uh, a miss as many would like it to be perceived. In 85, we pick up Terry Porter at the end of the first round. In 86, 86 may have been the best draft ever for the Trailblazers. Mm-hmm. They take Walter Berry in the first round. They find Arvidas Sabonis and Drazen Petrovic in rounds two and Huge. three. About Damn, fourteen, three to, oh, it's like six or seven back then. Goddamn! After about fourteen games in that '86 season, they move Walter Berry, a first-round pick, to San Antonio for Kevin Duckworth. Duckworth was mm. a second-round guy. And then in '89, they pick up Cliff Robinson in the second round. '88, I think they got Mark Bryant. So they were they really built that entire roster through the draft. Through the draft. Obviously, they traded yeah. a first-round pick. And Sam Bowie for Buck Williams, and they traded uh, Byron Urban in another first round pick for for Danny Ainge. But aside from Buck and Ainge, everybody was homegrown through the draft, mm-hmm. um, and, that, and that's what we're doing I mean, now. So to me, if we had Sabonis, I mean, that would have been. Do you think we would have traded Duck if Sabonis came earlier? Like, let's say he came in ninety one. I mean, would you have traded Duck? Uh, to me, I'm all about depth. I I, I saw. The Blazers had a really good seven-man rotation. I would have liked that to have been about nine. I mean, just looking at the minutes those guys played, that probably played another. Oh yeah, that probably was a factor in their. Collapse. Yeah, I mean they were. I mean, just just playing forty plus every night, and I would have loved to have kept Duckworth. Um, obviously, Sabonis had, had knee issues, so you never know if you're going to get a full eighty-two out of him. But yeah, you know, just eighty-two. In just looking back, you think. I do think 91 was the year they would have beaten the Bulls. The Bulls hadn't quite gotten to the level they were at in 92. And I think 
as a collective, the Blazers were the best roster. Um, in 1990, yes, we lost in five, but at nearly every game went down to the wire. And I think had we had Chicago beaten Detroit in 1990, Portland would have had a home court advantage. I think they would have beaten that Chicago team as well. So that's the breaks of the game, though. And Absolutely. we made it three straight times. Came up empty-handed, but came back with a lot of memories. Uh, it's the reason we're able to still talk about this team damn near 30 years later. And, you know, we'll continue to, to do so. But, you know, thank you for, for listening to this episode. Obviously, we'll be back when the schedule drops. And we'll, we'll talk about our favorite games, what ones we can't wait to see. Uh, maybe do an updated season predictions on the Blazers before we head into training camp. But hopefully this this holds you over for the summer. We might even do one more of these bad boys, but... Uh, oh, we got a special something planned soon I've been, that I, I can't wait I've to. i got to believe it when I see it, man, Sage. Like, when, when are we going to do this? Because I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to own all of you. Yo, this this special podcast that we're going to do with our homeboy, Stupendous, this is going to be the first time I take legitimate notes and read them. So, yo, you guys are in trouble. Like, this is one of the most... Dustin embarrassed me all those six years ago. I remember it. I'm going to have revenge on you, bro. And Stu. I'm whooping both of you guys' asses. I love both of you. But you both are going to lose in this This, this is a special podcast that's going to come up in a few weeks. Let our fans know so, where they can get us. But yes, be prepared to listen to me body both Long-time Blazer fans on Blazer's Knowledge. Um, coming pretty soon. But you can listen to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, uh, Himalaya Podcasts, Nothing But Net Radio, Tuesdays 2 to 3. And then we're on Blazer's Uprising on YouTube. And then for clips, if you want it from the podcast, you can listen to that on our own Holy Backboard-themed YouTube. So we're a lot of places for you to listen. And if you like us, rank and five star us on iTunes. That is the number one feeder to say nice things about us. And we really do appreciate it. We read them. And uh, thank you for listening. If you've made it this far, you're a real one. And we'll be back soon. And you'll hear me talk and uh, beat the shit out of two of my good friends on Blazers Knowledge. Wherever you may be, this is Bill Shinley. Good night, everybody. Let's go! Let's go. Come on.